Kiara, 你好 ，and hello, welcome to the Cherry Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. My guest today is Doug Antin. Doug is a return guest of my podcast. Last time, we discussed how to become a sovereign individual, digital transformation trends, cultivating multiple income streams, and writing newsletter. In today's episode, we continued our discussion in this domain, covering the book about sovereign individual, the network state, and how to cultivate media literacy, being a remote worker, and the geopolitics impact on individuals. I hope you enjoy the show. It's been one year since the last time we recorded the podcast together. So you know it's、uh, at the end of this year, and I'd like to ask, what's the highlight of you in 2022? Yeah, I, I think、uh, like many people, 2022 was a was a crazy year、uh, for me,、um, both in terms of you know personal things going on and、uh, just in terms of like the world in general and and self sovereignty and governments and. Technology and crypto, especially,、um, and so like a lot of these really interesting topics sort of merged that I cover in the newsletter. So it was like a really, really interesting time for me to be sort of on top of it all. from From the newsletter perspective, it was a great time to be writing about global events, sort of these macro geopolitical topics,、um, mm-hmm. like Ukraine getting invaded by Russia and what that did to the global economy and what that does to、um, an individual trying to make sense of, you know, I can now work remotely and live anywhere in the world, and how do these big forces impact the decisions that I can make? And so. On the other hand, it's like okay, well, I'm also an investor, and I have to look at these events and decide, well, what do I do with my money right now, and what's the best way to sort of manage,、uh, you know, my retirement savings, but also manage the like shorter and medium term goals that I have with my finances. And so I think it's it's just like me, like anyone else, you know, we're all trying to navigate this sort of new world and figure out what's what's the best. Best strategy forward in 2022 was a lot of that. I remember last time when we talk about in the podcast. I think it's the started of the crypto blooming, but after a year long, now it's like crypto winter time. So, what what changes have you found, and how did you adapt to this fast changing in crypto world? Yeah, so I think like anyone who's been sort of paying attention to crypto for a couple of years, you, you sort of know to expect the highs and the lows.、Um, but I think、uh, it was surprising to see how quickly the market just blew up for crypto. You know, I, I, I think that、um, had the war in Ukraine not happened. I think a lot of、uh, the decisions that the Federal Reserve made maybe wouldn't have happened as quickly, and the markets wouldn't have gone down as fast, and people would have had more time to prepare for it. But it was sort of like this rapidly evolving situation. The Feds have raised rates faster than they've done in like thirty, forty years,、um, and so a lot of people were just caught, not knowing what to do. And I think the crypto industry is a great example of that. A lot of the、um, companies that blew up、um, just were unprepared for the rapidly changing situation. They couldn't 
uh, unwind their positions effectively. And so you see this massive unwinding of crypto. And so now it's sort of like, well, what what is crypto? You know, we're, we're, we're left once again asking, you know, what is the use case of this new technology and how can I make it work for myself? How can I make it work for the world? And I think for me, it's sort of the, the same thesis that got me interested in the first place. It's, you know, Bitcoin as this sort of other form of money yep. that no state controls. I think that's really interesting from an individual perspective. <laughs> and then you have this sort of other side of the industry, which is like, you could call it Web3 now, but it's it's sort of like trying to make a more decentralized internet that also has an appeal to sort of this self-sovereignty idea of like, I want to be able to control my information and how I interact with the broader sort of digital age ecosystem. True. Did you see the concept of sovereign individual evolving when we're facing all these new technologies such as artificial intelligence and the blockchain? When the writer wrote the book, Sovereign Individuals, everything we mentioned haven't existed yet. But now with all the new technology existed, did, did you find out the concept changed? Yeah, I think the book, you know, it was written like 25 years ago. And it's still remarkable that they were able to forecast so many things that have happened. Um, but I also think that the book is not so accurate on a lot of fronts, mainly that, you know, it's very much a pro like individual, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's think for yourself, by yourself, operate for yourself. But I think at the end of the day, the things that have become clear, especially in 2022 is, is you, you really unique community. You can't live in a world by yourself. You can't live in an island. You have to live with people um, and interact with people. And so um, I think the thing that's become clear to me as technologies have developed, you know, crypto, AI, and all this stuff is it's really good for building a lifestyle for yourself that you want. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's only as good as the communities you live in. Um, and you need to find a way to coexist with the rest of the world. Yeah. So how how do you find your community? I know both of us belong to a 1729 community. Like when you want to be part of community, what's the criteria you use to find the right one for you? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, I look for uh, rationality more than anything, you know, are, are people able to look at current events, look at sort of the narratives that are developing and think for themselves? Um, are they willing to sort of be more centrist um, with their political views? You know, I, I think one of the things that really annoys me with a lot of online discourse is you have to sort of pick a side and yeah. either you're, you're totally conservative and you're like this alt-right kind of like monster Mm. or you're a super woke progressive and you've got these really strong views and it's my way or the highway and i don't think like that i don't work like that and so i gravitate towards communities where people are willing to have constructive dialogues about individual issues that are going on in the world and and sort of make up your mind as you go and not have like this sort of like play card of like here's what my community thinks mm -hmm. this is how i'm also going to think 
Yeah, even in the crypto community, you know, there's a Bitcoin maximum. Exactly. What was your opinion towards that? Do you think they they have their own community and they intend to not interact yeah. with other communities? I think there's a lot to criticize about them, but the truth is, like. 2022, you know, it was a crazy year for crypto, and a lot of what they say and the way they act, it's, it's you gotta you gotta sit there and ask yourself, you know, do do they have a point? Should it be Bitcoin only? I don't personally believe that, but you know, I I think that they're a very important part of a broader ecosystem, and I wish that they would be more willing to engage with other aspects of crypto because. At the end of the day, if we want Bitcoin to be this sort of other form of money,、mm-hmm. it really needs to be useful for other things.、Um, and、yeah. to me, that means you know being able to buy and sell the crypto, being able to buy and sell things in real life. And if you're not willing to engage with all types of community, I don't think you can be this really powerful form of other money.、Mm, exactly. No, I, I'm not sure if you finished reading Balaji's The Network State. I did. I did. It was a a very interesting book.、Uh-huh. What was your three biggest takeaway from that book? It took me a month, whole month, to read the whole book, but、uh, I haven't finished all the notes and all the links he mentioned in that book. Yeah, I I think you know Balaji is 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 very、um, correct. Is is the simplest way to say it? I, but but I think he's early、mm-hmm. by many years. Kind of how the sovereign individual, when it was published twenty five years ago, was early by many years on a lot of the topics they were forecasting.、Um, I do think that the network state is something that will come to be in more of a formal capacity, you know, more so than seventeen twenty nine, more so than Plumia and some of these other ones、mm-hmm. that are popping up right now. But I, I I think that in the long run, you will see communities form online. They will raise money. They will then figure out, okay, how can we sort of reconstitute our our sort of community in the real world, and they'll find a place to maybe set up shop temporarily and sort of commingle. And then in the long run, I do think that they'll basically crowd crowdsource a country, and they'll find maybe a place like Argentina, which has runaway inflation and some some bad debt issues, that will maybe be willing to. Negotiate a, a land deal for for money to basically pay down debt and get get their economy in order. You know, will it be Argentina? I have no idea. I have no idea where where it will be or could be.、Um, but I do see that as a realistic outcome in the future. Yeah. Are there any arguments Balaji's mentioned in the network state you disagree with? You know, I, I read the Vitalik his comment on. The network state, because he mentioned, ah,、uh, it's for the elite. It's not like for the common people. So, so that's one of his criticisms. I I think I agree with that to some extent.、Um, that doesn't mean it won't happen, and it, like I don't think that matters.、Um, I think the rest of the world is coming online very rapidly. It's like something like sixty percent of the global population has regular internet access, and that's that's changing at an exponential rate. I think. Probably by the end of the decade, the majority of the global population will have regular internet access. We'll be able to interact with these communities in some way.、Um, I think we're going through a point in time where 
digital age incomes are becoming accessible because of that fact. So even people in you know the poorest places in Africa will be able to do work for digital companies and earn you know higher standards of living than they otherwise would, and they might realistically be able to interact with a network state. Um, the thing that maybe I don't necessarily agree with um, from the book perspective is he talks a lot about having like one solitary leader and sort of this concept of like a, a one commandment where it's like this common core principle that brings everyone together. And I think that that works at the start, but you're not going to have a very large community form. I don't think if it's just over one broad concept like longevity, I, you know, I, I think that's enough to sort of have common interests, but for everyone to sort of come together and decide like, Hey, we're going to build this like longevity state in the real world and live together in harmony. Like the, the range of beliefs and ideologies that sort of fall under that umbrella are very conflicting. And I, I don't really see or understand at least at the moment how that would work in the real world. The, the contrast to that is like, I think um, Plumia is, is a good example of like, their community has like a really strong one commandment of like trying to make an internet country where like digital nomads can freely move from country to country. Mm. That's really compelling, but do they need to like exist in the real physical world? I, I don't know. And if, if, if you were to say yes, then I, I, I couldn't see that community coming together to like form a government in the physical world to like enact policies. Like I think there's too many different perspectives on how, how to do that effectively for that to work. Yeah, I agree. I'm also part of the Plumia community. For me, I just want to have a easy passport so I can travel to every country, which is under their network. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't imagine I live with all the people from that community. Right. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with any, any perspective mm-hmm. that's in that community. It's just, I think, pragmatically, it's, it's how, how do you make that work? Mm. Yeah, just like the Sovereign Individual book. So when, when it's published 25 or 20 years ago, did, did it generate a lot of discussion or only in today's world, people start to find out, oh, this book is uh, so true? I don't know is the short answer, but I, I think it didn't generate a lot of buzz initially. Mm. It wasn't until like some of the highly successful names in Silicon Valley started to read it, like Peter Thiel, mm. that, that everyone else started to read it. And then it sort of became this like self-fulfilling prophecy where like <laughs> people read it, they were inspired and then they started to build technology solutions towards that end, sort of that vision in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could argue maybe even Bitcoin's sort of concepts were helped along by concepts from the sovereign individual because those were common Silicon Valley and sort of global tech tech ideas um, at the time. But it's it's really hard to say. The reason I ask this question when I talk with my friends, uh, not the online friends, but the the one in my physical location, 
I talk about the network state, they all say, oh, are you crazy? How come you think about that? Yeah, Especially yeah. in China, since I came back to China and, you know, China is different, especially the communist governed world. If you want to build another country, that would be like, you, you right. probably will, will be put into the jail because you, you want to like disrupt their ruling. So especially when I came to China, I realized that, wow, the, this concept of the network state, when I talk with my online friends, that's fine. They can't get it. But in when I talk to my friends in China, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> did, did you find you have the same feeling? Totally. That That's the story of my life. <laughs> you know, I have two very, very different groups of people that I interact mm-hmm. with. You know, it's, it's the physical community around me and, and the friends and, and family and, you know, people that I engage with on a regular basis there. And then I use the internet to find people uh, that are interested in, similar things that I am. And I I think that's part of the beauty of an idea like the network state is like, we're getting to a point where, you know, you'll be able to work remotely for the most part, if you want to, you'll have access to those types of opportunities. And when you work remotely, you can then decide what kind of world do I want to live in? Do I want to live in communities with people that maybe have radically different views than me? that's sort of currently the case or do I want to find a group of people online that sort of have similar values that I do and do I want to sort of I don't know maybe not a network state but maybe maybe we buy uh buy a neighborhood you know we buy five six houses on a block and we all live together and sort of share common values Mm -hmm. in in the physical world I, I think I think that's possible um and it's 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 causing a lot of changes in society because maybe not on a network state scale, but on a smaller scale that that's possible. And people are starting to experiment with that. Mm. How do you say like individuals can stay informed, stay up to date with the latest development in technology and uh, digital transformation? Because I know it's a still probably less than 10% people will get the idea of crypto or Web3 or the network state. So what about the rest of the people? I think from like a philosophical perspective, you have to be very open to exposing yourself to ideas that maybe you don't agree with or understand, like the network state. If that sounds crazy to you, that doesn't mean you should just close your eyes and ears and ignore it. You still should pay attention to it. Yeah. Just because crypto doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean you should ignore it. You should still pay attention to it and try and understand the alternative perspectives. Um, I think one of the things that's going to continuously start to happen is new technologies are going to continue to emerge that are going to really change how we live and work and form relationships with each other. And if, if you just bury your head in the sand and, and only focus on the things that you value, you're going to find yourself left behind by society. And you're going to find yourself in circumstances where it's too late to do anything about it and make radical changes in your life. And so for me, what I tell people is be open to reading and and watching and engaging with people that have different perspectives 
that, that so for me that means like joining all these different communities online just to like you know I, mm-hmm. I don't really interact with 1729 it doesn't it doesn't move the needle for me but I like going in there and seeing what everyone's talking about just so I can know and, and be informed about it um, I prefer Plumia but Plumia is not as active and so you know I, I just joined their cohort um, that they're going to do where they're trying to, to connect people from all over the world. I have no idea what that's going to be about, um, but I threw myself into it because I'm like, okay, this sounds interesting. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll learn something. Maybe I won't. Um, but at least I'll know about this perspective that this community is forming online, and I'll be able to say for myself, you know, is this is this a trend that's going to stick or is it not going to stick? And so um, to answer your question, I think on the individual basis is just be curious and engage with things that are new and different. Yeah, I, I read your newsletter every week, and I found out it covers a wide range of topics. I'm very curious to know how is your research process look like? How many hours you dedicate to to find all those in- information? It it changes week over week, honestly. But for the most part, I'm I'm just like very much on Twitter. I follow a wide range of sort of traditional media sources. So like the wall street journal, Mm -hmm. the New York times, things like that. But I also follow a variety of influencers in different areas. And I try and just watch this like hot ball of information flow from narrative to narrative and, and pull things that I think are happening in the background that are actually shaping uh, society on like a 12 to 18 month horizon. Um, So when I originally started the newsletter, I was like, I want to try and forecast current events from the lens of the sovereign individual Mm -hmm. and say like, can we figure out where we are in this like new digital society that was predicted in this book? And can we, can we view from current events what's happening in real time to get us there? It's, it's become more following people rather than traditional media publications, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, because yeah, I say sometimes you cover some political landscape, which I'm also very interested I see you, you're not just uh, talk about America, <laughs> but the, all, all over the world. And how, how can you ensure you didn't have the bias towards the political news because you know for for example for me when i read something about western media feature china i feel like oh it's not true or vice versa when i read some chinese news about what happened in america and russia it's uh, no i know it's not true do you have this filter or to help you to pick up the right perspective i have a couple of views on that the first and foremost is everyone's biased in one way or another. And, and so it's, it's okay to, to read and engage with biased content. I mean, you're never, you're never going to get anything that's not biased. There's always an agenda and I'm okay with that. Mm. I try and approach all content from that perspective, actually. How is this, like, what is the agenda? What are they trying to convey and how does that fit into a broader narrative? For me, as a content writer and sort of like a creator, I guess, mm. is I, I've become more in tuned with like how bias is injected into 
headlines and paragraphs and video snippets and, you know, tweets and, and things like that, because I just, that's what you do for clicks. And so I've become better at sort of understanding what's clickbait and what's not. Yeah. <laughs> what filters into maybe like, uh, like the New York Times, for example, is like, you know, I usually have a rule where it's like, if I get fooled once, okay, like maybe it was just a fluke. If I get fooled twice, it's not really a fluke. I'm I'm probably going to not trust the source until I see it's a story that's being confirmed elsewhere. And especially with a lot of the stuff coming out of Ukraine, um, you know, March, April, May, I very quickly realized like, the the fog of war was in effect and like the war wasn't just physical it was this information war where there was a lot of propaganda going around a lot of different publications were trying to spin the narrative and if i see that that's actively happening i'll usually take a step back and try not to engage with the topic until some of the dust has settled and i can see more clearly like okay what are the actual threads here and what's what's sort of the bs that's very great approach I know probably it's uh, two years since you write your newsletter. Yeah, it was like August of 2020, I guess, is when I started it. And you made it into the paid newsletter a couple of months ago. Yeah, that was that was a fun experience. I think I'm probably going to ultimately change it because I have discovered that I don't love the idea of putting the majority of my work behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. I'd rather put more of it out there into the world if possible. So I'm like currently in the process of trying to figure out what's the, the best step for doing that and like still providing as much value as I can to as many readers as I can. And so I'm not quite sure the way that will evolve moving forward, but the early sort of um, conversion of like, you know, the newsletters that I, the the readers that I had sort of pulled from the past two-ish plus years um, and converted to the subscriber tier, I was, I was very, very happy with. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm a content creator as you, and I always think, uh, how can I turn this work into a like paid subscription so I can support myself? I also did some experiments like running a paid community yeah. yeah but sometimes i just feel like once i set up the paywall it will restrict my reach to the wide audience so there is always a balance i need to master yeah i think the the interesting things is like you have to again it's it comes back to sort of this this lifestyle sovereignty the process has to work for you and the life that you want to live and and for me one of the things I was realizing is like, oh, I'm going to have to become one of those like thread boys who's like every week, like writing threads on Twitter and like <laughs> doing all this clickbait stuff to like get people to the regular newsletter and then coming up with like ways to like harass the regular newsletter subscribers to subscribe to the paid tier. And it, it was like the the business side of it wasn't as compelling once I launched it for like ultimately what I wanted to achieve. Like I want to spend more time focusing on like how the world's changing and how I can effectively like give that value to, to readers. So I don't want to focus on like 
oh, how can I get more eyeballs on my top of funnel content into the newsletter? And then how can I convert them? Like, I, I don't want to focus as much on the business side of it. I want to focus on just pure value driven. Mm, I see. So your ultimate goal is not relying on this newsletter to make money, but uh, it's more like your side passion project. No, I, it, it, for sure. And and if I can make money out of it, like that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But also when I first started writing online, it was sort of to figure out what were the next steps in my life and what were the things that were interesting to me. But then it sort of evolved into like, I'm trying to make sense of the world so that I can invest my money and, and sort of adapt my lifestyle to to, to just thrive. And it still it still serves that purpose. And what I realized was, you know, if, if this is benefiting me, it'll benefit other people. And it, and it certainly has throughout the, the two plus years that I've been writing it. And, and I'm trying to evolve it back to those roots a little bit of like, here's here's a worldview that's unfolding if you believe it here here are the things you can do to adapt to it and thrive given those circumstances sure have you thought about put all your newsletter as a collection to publish a book yeah so that's what the book that i'm working on will be is less so the newsletter and more so like the key points from the newsletter and my original blog of like here's what's happening in the world, here's why it's happening, and here's what that means for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say I'm like 70, 75% of the way done on that. Um, and so when that when that's done, I'll, I'll drop that book and reasonably sure that I will do that paid at the moment, but it's very possible that I might just give it away for free. Oh, I haven't decided. Like the network state yeah. technology just put online. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really decided yet because because at the end of the day, like I, I think of myself as like this information maximalist where it's like the benefit of the internet is like you can access whatever you want. And the more people that access it, the more that, um, will potentially reach out to me and say, wow, this, this changed my life. How can we interact with each other? And I think there's more value in those types of interactions than like if I charge $10 for a book. Mm-hmm. Have, have you met any friends through your newsletter or from online? Like people reach out to you to say, oh, wow, I love your content. I think I, I'm a one of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I reach out to you. So, so like... Uh, one of the things whenever I travel, I'll, I'll put in the newsletter like, hey, I'm going to be in XYZ community. If you're there and you want to meet up, let's meet up. And I've met up with a couple of people. The same would be true for you. Like if I ever see that we're we're in the same place, we're definitely meeting. It's, it's one of the more rewarding aspects of making content online is, is connecting with people. Yeah. You know, I have a variety of pen pals now where it's like, People will send me things and like, hey, like, love your new letter. Have have you have you thought about this? Have you seen this? And it's like, it's fantastic. It's mm. we're a bunch of nerds talking about things that we we enjoy. And like you said earlier, it's like your friends in your physical community could care less, but it's like you're making friends online, and that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, the new way of making friends. I, I love this. It also motivates me to produce more content. Yeah, and, and so like that that that's sort of the drawback for me is like if I put it all behind a paywall um for subscribers, yeah, I'm making money and I'm I'm really pleased with like the early results of of what the paid tier has done, but it's like it sort of makes it an arms race in a way that that 
it takes away some of that value that I, I was enjoying so much. And so I have to basically decide to, do I continue doing this or do I refund everyone and just say, Hey, let's, let's find a different way forward to, to sort of get the results that I want to get out of it. Yeah. And for your newsletter, I see it's also evolving in the past year. You change the format and also add some different like column. So I've changed um, the like service provider that I've used um, three times. First, I was on Mailchimp, then I was on MailerLite, and now I'm with Beehive. Mm-hmm. And each step of the way, it's been for a variety of reasons. But I felt like I wanted a platform that could do yeah. paid tier, which Beehive could do, um, and MailerLite could do. But the, like the way to do it, just I didn't like it. But the thing I really liked about Beehive was that it's like this young, scrappy startup company oh, that's cool. like pushing updates and product changes um, based on user feedback really quickly. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd always prefer to use like a smaller company that's sort of like emergent because um, that's exciting to me. But I also really like the um, the ability to like drop in like feedback uh-huh. surveys. So like at the bottom of each newsletter now, I have like an ability you can you can give me like five stars four stars, three stars, one. Like if, if you hate it, you can give me like one star. And then it gives you the ability to like write in actual feedback. And it's been really nice getting the call to action each week is like, if you make it to the end of the newsletter, give me feedback. <laughs> and it's really nice to get that feedback to know like, okay, like this is the type of content people like. This is the type of content that people really hate. You know, sometimes as a content creator, you're like putting stuff out into the world and it's like screaming into the wind. Like Mm. it could be the best stuff ever and no one will say anything or it could be the best stuff ever. And just all of a sudden people are like, wow, this is amazing. Or it's like you change, you change one thing and people are like, this is awful. I loved how it was before and I can't believe you did that. And so having, having this new platform makes it easier to get the feedback. And also for the topics you selected, did you make any changes from when you first started? Yeah, I think when I first started, I was more abstractly trying to figure out like what is what does the sovereign individual mean mm-hmm. and how how is it actually manifesting in the real world? And now that I've sort of validated that it's happening, what the like key topics are to sort of adopting that kind of a, a free lifestyle, you know, limiting out outside influences. Um, I've evolved it to be like, I'm trying to live a self-sovereign lifestyle, whatever that means to me, it's, it's, it's limiting outside influences on my life. Um, and so as I try and adopt that lifestyle, I'm focused mm-hmm. on topics that are relevant to that. So, you know, at the macro level, it's what's, what's Russia doing in Ukraine and how does that impact how supply chains are changing around the world? And and like, what does that mean for like, if I can't buy the things I want in the local store, well, where can I move to, to a place that I can have all the things I want and not worry about, you know, out, outside influences impacting my lifestyle. It's about adopting remote work. So I'm, I'm getting a remote work job. Um, so I can have that primary source of remote income and live wherever I want. And then I can 
continue to focus on, you know, side income streams where I have a little more resilience, where if for whatever reason I lose the job, it doesn't impact my life. Um, and, you know, moving from Boston to Virginia to Florida, it's like, okay, now I'm in a, in a location that doesn't have state income tax. Yeah. What am I going to do with that extra money that I don't have to pay to the government? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the newsletter has taken on a focus of these are the issues that are relevant to the sort of current lifestyle that I, I've adopted, but also forward looking to these are the things I see coming down the pipeline that will impact my life. And I'm trying to pay attention to them so I can be prepared to um, live through them and, and not have any sort of impact to my lifestyle. Yeah, your newsletter kind of evolving as your lifestyle changing. And I also feel like, wow, it's very relevant to my lifestyle. Like I'm doing remote work and also watching what happened all around the world, especially in China, Russia, Ukraine, or America. So yeah, it's very relevant to me. Yeah, I, I think like I try and make it seem relevant to everyone because I, I do think that we're very good at sort of looking at you know, the, the never ending now, like the things that are happening in the moment, but we don't think about sort of second and third order consequences and and how those will impact our lives. And so I, I just like doing it. I like thinking, you know, three, four, five steps ahead if I can and how, how that will impact the, the choices that I can make down the road. And I think for, for people like you that are, are, you know, you're a road warrior, you're, you're traveling all over the world, you're interacting with very different cultures, and you're more in tune with global affairs than I think the everyday person would be. But but the topics resonate with you because of that. Yeah. So what's your opinion on the current relationship between China and the US and how that can affect the individual's life? I think it sucks. I mean, I you know, I went to school with um, a couple of people from China and I like really valued the relationship and the perspective that they, they had on the world. And it was very, very different than mine and sort of forced me to look at the like the bias that growing up in America sort of imprinted on me. Mm. Um, you know, I think when you travel the world a lot and you meet a lot of different people, you realize people are people and Governments are governments and media is media. And there's a lot of um, influence that's being projected onto everyday people. And I think the tragedy of the current relationship with the U.S. and China is like, it just like robs us, robs us of sort of fusing the cultures together, which I think would be really amazing for the entire world is like we should be getting closer together not farther apart unfortunately i think the the nature of the digital age and 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 sort of the the way things are shaping up you know semiconductor chips are the productive asset of the digital age you can't have smartphones you can't have laptops you can't have airplanes you can't have anything without semiconductors and taiwan is really the most important place on the planet at the moment for that. And, you know, China has very strong policies towards Taiwan and the U S 
seems to be having strong policies there too. And I, I think until the U.S. really starts to to get some of this, you know, they they spent like fifty billion dollars yeah. subsidizing um, semiconductor companies um, to basically come and build manufacturing in the U.S. Once that happens, I think tensions maybe will let up a little bit, but. Uh, that's five, six, seven years down the road. And so I don't see things really normalizing until after that. Yeah. How, how do you see the role of government evolving in a world where individuals have more power because of the technology? I think it's going to be really, really, really interesting. I write about it a lot, which is this, this new social class divide of, you know, it used to be, blue collar workers versus white collar workers, you know, you work a farm or a manual labor job in a, you know, a manufacturing plant or you worked a desk job. And now it's more splitting social class along. Um, you, you work a job where you, you have to work in one location, whether it's an office or a plant or whatever, or you can work from anywhere in the world. And that's going to start splitting policy wants and needs from these two groups. And ultimately that's going to start changing how people vote. And so governments are going to change their policies along those lines of how do we interact with a world where technology now permits a growing number of people to work and live and move wherever they want. You're seeing in San Francisco, the early impacts of remote work you know, a bunch of businesses have left. They've cut down on their office space. And as a result of that, the valuations of those corporate real estate, you know, the, the, the big buildings in downtown San Francisco, they're worthless. Um, and because they're worth less, tax revenues are less. And now there's a big budget shortfall for the city of San Francisco. And they're having to cut a whole bunch of programs because they don't have the money for them. And so governments like San Francisco that are super progressive, they're going to have to cut back and that's going to impact, you know, the electorate and who people vote for and what matters to them. Mm -hmm. And then you have a place like Miami where it's like, yeah, we're this haven for technologists, remote workers come, it doesn't matter. Um, And it's, it's sort of the opposite. And so it's a long winded way of saying, I think that over the next five years, Really, we'll start to see it in the U.S. with this this upcoming 2024 election cycle. But I think it'll be the following one where it's like stark. Political candidates are going to run on platforms of location-dependent social class issues versus location-independent issues. And the technology is interwoven throughout that and, and how, how policy is implemented. So if you're location-dependent, you know, you're probably not going to be so positive on crypto. You're probably not going to be so positive on um, uh, remote work. And maybe if companies allow remote work and they're not physically present, maybe uh, new taxes will be imposed on them and things of that nature. And so it will all play out um, in elections, uh, at least for free market economies and and. Um, more authoritarian places, I think governments will just crack down on what they don't like. I feel like a Portuguese government did a very good job because during the pandemic, they issued a special visa for digital nomads. So they attract a lot of tech workers to to Lisbon. 
and they also host the Web Summit and the Neocon, this kind of Web3 conference. So I feel like they adapt to the trends pretty well. So that's a really, really good example, actually, because you're right, for, for stimulating the local economy, it brought a whole bunch of people to the area that were spending money and, and it was great. But it also drove up prices mm-hmm. for goods and services and homes. And that really impacted people that had no choice, but, you know, their jobs were there. And, and so the, it was like the local communities saw the prices increase and it was inflation on inflation. Um, and they don't like having the remote workers there. And so that's an example of like the friction that's forming and the, the, the new class divide that's that's forming. Mm, yeah, I feel like a lot of local Lisbon people, they start protest like, oh, we don't like digital nomads. Yeah. The, the housing price is crazy. So do you have any solution for the government to solve this problem? Like how can they balance this? Attracting the remote worker and also facing locals' complaints? I don't have a, a solution I just have a prediction for how it will play out. Mm. You will have some cities go one way and some cities go another way. So like San Francisco, mm. I think is an example where they're going to, they're just going to do it for location dependent people. Yeah. Um, because I think that's just more in line with like the current progressive agenda there, um, which is more punitive on tech companies. And so that's, it's not the perfect example because I think there's, there's other factors going on there, but I suspect that they will become sort of this location dependent place. Miami will be an example of location independent and you'll have different types of governments form different places. And it'll sort of be like an early experiment of like what policies work to attract or repel these different social classes. And you'll see migration and you'll see people picking up and saying, I can't afford this lifestyle. I got to move somewhere that that's going to take care of the, the type of work that I do. Mm. Um, and then the pendulum will swing back where it's like, okay, we can't just have remote workers in our city because we need, you know, we need people to work sanitation. We need electricians, we need plumbers and things like that. And so how can we make policy that sort of finds a happy medium? And so, it's going to split and then we're going to come back together somewhere in the middle. And I'm unsure of what that looks like, but I do believe that it's going to play out over like a five to six year timeline. Wow. That's cool. Have you seen any other trends or development in the tech world that you are most excited about or concerned about in the near future? The thing that I think holds back everything um, at the moment, there's sort of two, two types of issues is remote work right now really keeps you tethered for the most part to a time zone. So like if you're working for a US based company, you really, you can't go beyond plus or minus like six hours for time zone difference. Otherwise it's just too hard to coordinate. That's me at the moment. Yeah, I work for an American company, so sometimes I go to meeting at midnight. It's hard. Uh, yeah, it's hard. I, I, yeah. I think the, the the point is, it's not to say you can't do it. It's just that on aggregate, mm. most companies don't want to do that. And they don't want to do it because the asynchronous sort of work whenever you want and interact 
with the company on the work you need to get done, um, regardless of time zone, those policies, procedures, really technical tools haven't been developed yet to make that lifestyle a reality. And so that's one area that I think is ripe for disruption. Mm. Um, now that COVID is sort of still here, but, but everyone's sort of like moving on from it and life is normalizing, mm. I think now we'll start to see what does permanent remote work look like? What does permanent hybrid work look like? And how can we build policies, procedures, and tools around that to make it so that we can work more asynchronously? And I think that will have really, really big impacts on the entire world. Mm. The other thing that I think is sort of becoming a reality is what is what is a small family that can work remotely supposed to do about their children in a way that they can take advantage of this sort of like location independent lifestyle? So parents can pick up and move, but what are they going to do with their kids? Like their kids are in school and they need to socialize and all that. So I think that, again, immediate need is solutions for children in terms of early childhood education, social networking, and sort of finding communities for them to make friends if and when parents decide to relocate. And then how does that sort of segue into higher education and this bubble that's sort of maybe popping? is like what alternatives will come as a result of the fact that you have this generation that grew up connected to the internet 100% of their lives. They know how to find what they need online to learn, to build new skills, to interact with people, to market and sell themselves. And how does that change how we think about like entering the workforce and the type of educational programs that they need to interact with before then? And I think remote work is going to have an interesting evolutionary pressure mm. on that process. Yeah, I feel very excited. Well, at this stage, we can witness all these rapid changes. Yeah, it's it's yeah. very exciting. It's going to be nerve wracking too because a lot of things are going to make us feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. on a regular basis. True. Um, but but like I said a little earlier, I think you just have to be like open to listening and interacting with things that maybe are different and not something that you're accustomed to, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that they're they're driving meaningful change to society. Yeah. Have you ever had the fear in your heart, like when you're facing all this uncertainty and also you didn't go with a traditional path as the most people do? Like how, how do you overcome that? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, when... When it was clear that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, that changed my worldview a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when it was clear that there were credible threats that if the U.S. got more involved or if NATO got more involved, Russia would use a nuclear weapon as, as a means to, you know, say, hey, we got to defend ourselves, whether right or wrong, I I make no judgment. Um, For me, that made me realize that, you know, when you're pursuing a self-sovereign lifestyle, you really, there are no safety nets. And what do you do in the event that 
sort of this like global political landscape continues to deteriorate and you've got four different passports to different countries. I mean, that's an extreme example, but like you got four passports to different countries and they start canceling them all because, Hey, we don't want people from, from those locations coming, coming into our country. And then you try and go back to your home country and they're like, well, look at what you did. You know, you've, you've got this life that you have decided to not commit to any one nation and, and we don't want you here either. And, and so for me, I, I see this scenario developing where it's like, it's scary to go off and be on your own because there's not going to be any safety nets, the direction that the world's heading in. That's why I, I try to like get as many passports as possible. Right. Yeah, because I know if something happened, I probably have a backup plan, but now I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, the way I think about it is, it's it's called flag theory where where you mm. you you get citizenship in different locations for different reasons i think the the way you sort of hedge your bets is you think about it from a geopolitical standpoint as well where you don't just want passports in western nations you want passports in the global south so mm. maybe in latin america or africa um and places that maybe don't have skin in the game when, when the big superpowers, you know, don't get along. Um, and you want, you want citizenship in places that like maybe will be more likely to stand by you as opposed to just like, mm, my, my trade relationship with the U S is too important mm. to me to protect this person. Yeah. I think New Zealand is uh, probably the best option at the moment. <laughs> Like uh, Peter Till, he even bought a bunker in New Zealand as a, right. <laughs> it's a backup plan. So. Yeah, next year is uh, just right at the corner. What's your top three priority you'd like to achieve in 2023? Yeah, so it's funny. I was, I was writing down some of my goals um, the other day. Oh, cool. I want to build up uh, like a cash reserve because I think that there's going to be very, very, very interesting investment opportunities that present themselves in 2023. Um, and I don't think it will be too far into 2023 that they start to appear. That's crypto and that's stocks and, and things like that. But, but also from a personal perspective, um, I think that like there's going to be a lot of like baby boomer generation people that just get fed up with dealing with running a business and want to retire. And I think mm. there will be opportunities to buy you know, pretty beat up businesses that, that run well in, in a, a decent economy that maybe are looking mm -hmm. for an exit. And, and um, I want to be ready to pounce if an opportunity presents itself. Other goals, um, I want to continue using crypto in meaningful ways. Um, so I just went to uh, India uh, on on like a two-week trip uh, for a wedding, a friend's wedding. And um, I have to pay a friend back because she was basically like spotting me rupees on, on the trip. And it's so incredibly difficult to, to just pay her back. And so I, like, I want to make it my goal to interact with my international friends using crypto. Mm. So that's like my, my 2023 goal is I have a couple of friends that I, I like see on a semi-regular basis. I expect to see this year and 
I want to be able to interact with them using crypto um, because I think that's that's meaningful. And the final goal is to con- continue to experiment with remote work and what it means to sort of be a slow mad. I don't like the idea of like, you know, the the stereotypical digital nomad of like, you have this huge oversized backpack and you're like <laughs> in a different city every day. Like, I, I hate that. But I want to experiment with like once a quarter being in a new mm-hmm. location. And there's like a couple of places that I want to see is like, is this a place I could see myself living in for, you know, a good chunk of the year? Or is this just, this was a fun trip and I, I don't need to be here again for another bunch of years. So I hope to to do more of that yeah. um, this coming year. Cool. May I ask uh, which location are you considering at the moment? Well, so because I'm starting this new job and it's pretty much US based, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm like restricted mm-hmm. in what I can do, but I would like to check out uh, I have some friends in Mexico and I would like to check out Mexico as sort of like an option. And there's a bunch of cities there that, that I would be willing to do. It's sort of whichever way the wind blows. I want to check out Texas. I've never been to Texas and I feel like I'm missing out on, on that. And I have, I have a friend down there that I'd like to visit. And then there's a part of me that just wants to buy a beat up truck and just drive across the country and, and just, stop when i feel like it that's cool that's a my dream way to travel america yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to drive a truck too yeah you should do it that i heavily influenced by the american movie especially all the road movies. you should commit to it commit to it and let me know where you're going to be in yeah. up. before the relationship between china and america turning worse i should do it yeah, beforehand no. thank you so much for your time today doug it's always a pleasure to talk with you thank you as well it's it's always fun and i like connecting with people on these topics and so it's mm-hmm. it's an awesome experience for me as well yeah. if people want to follow you or know what you're up to and learn from your newsletter where where can they go yeah you can uh, follow me on twitter at doug anton um, or you can go to the sovereign individual weekly.com uh, and check out the newsletter there cool i'll put the show notes there awesome cool okay thank you